Before we come to the Word, we often read uh, Scripture to help us prepare our hearts as we reflect on uh, who uh, the Lord is. And when we, when we confess, we're not only confessing sin, but we're confessing uh, who, who God is. And so as we read at, at the top of uh, the service, I'd just like to read again uh, Psalm 19, verse 14. And I'll, I'll read it a few times so that we might just hear this word, hear this uh, call from the Scriptures for us to live lives of holiness before God. Psalm 19, verse 14, I pray this is the prayer of our hearts. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Once more. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Heavenly Father, we realize that often the words that we speak, the words we choose, and the heart that overflows into speaking those words are out of step with your gospel, are out of step with your truth, are not anchored in the rock and redeemer that you are. And so, Father, forgive us cleanse us, purify us of a guilty conscience, lead us in the way everlasting, lead us in accordance with your will and your way. And we ask this not just individually, but for us as a community, would you make us holy, even as your son is holy? And so, Father, help us as we come to your word, transform us, renew us, make us the people you're calling us to be, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, we're continuing on our fifth installment in our study in Acts. Acts chapter 3 will be in verses 1 through 10, so either type that into your Bibles or open uh, your Bibles to Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you'll get to Acts. If you get to Romans, go back to the left. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Before we jump in, we've been doing our best to give you updates about what's going on uh, with our church. Uh, For those uh, who don't know, our church, Park Community Church, Logan Square, is becoming church in the square on September 1st is our first day of autonomy as a new church, and September 2nd will be our first gathering. Though many things, you know, have begun to change or really have been changing this past year, a couple of things are going on this summer that we just want to kind of keep you posted as those things are going on. We had our first membership class for Church in the Square. We have some charter members now of this new church, which is really exciting. Um, I don't even think I was first because I had a hard time signing the digital thing, so my wife had to help me with that. So we have some charter members. I wasn't a member of the church, like, originally, so I'm glad to be a member uh, now. And so that process is happening. That process is going on. Many of our existing Park Logan partners are in that process of becoming uh, members, and there will be one more class uh, next month, or rather August, excuse me. We're not quite, or no, this is July. This is July 1st, isn't it, right? 
my watch. I got I to gotta flip it forward. Um, this month, not this month, but next month, we'll have another uh, partnership transition course. And then in October, we'll have a come one, come all if you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of Church in the Square. So that's going on. We are working on new position uh, descriptions for our staff that we'll uh, be transitioning them from Park Community Church into Church in the Square. Um, and also our finance team has begun to meet to do things like get a bank account open, thanks be to God, uh, for that so that we can be ready uh, to take on our own finances come September 1st. Grateful for the men and women who are serving uh, in that capacity. Really, really grateful because you do not want me to touch any of that for multiple reasons, I guess, um, but mostly because of skill or lack thereof. Also, I just want to keep in mind, there's a lot of stuff going on in-house with this transition, with what where partners are and what's going on. Everybody kind of curious about who's going where, who's doing what. A lot of that is internal. And I think the evil one would love if we stayed and continued to do that. And so I just want to encourage us that the reason that we are sensing God's call into this new season is not to shuffle the deck of Christians, is not to shuffle the deck of men and women and what church they go to and, and what, what uh, place they claim is theirs. We're doing this so that more people will know Jesus. We're doing this so that we will all grow up as the church together in Christ, but we're doing this because we desire more people to come to know, love, follow, and be obedient to King Jesus. And so I just think that it's important as we're doing these transitions, it's good, it's right to have good, thoughtful conversations about what God is doing in your story. But let's be mindful that he has called us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, not just within the walls of our church. And so I pray, whatever that looks like for you and me, that we would continue to be mindful of our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our friends that we live next to, so that we would see more people come to know him through this. Not that we would get clarity about who is where and what they're doing, but ultimately that more people would come to know Jesus. This is my heart. This is our desire as an elder team, as a staff, um, and I can't wait to see how the Lord, Lord will do that. Finally, before we, we jump in, I, I know that many, many of you uh, were down either in the loop or different places, some brothers and sisters all over the world supporting um, and really supporting families that had been separated. And I want to keep our minds attuned to this because I think one way or the other, whether we showed up in a context like that or not, it can be a dividing line for the church instead of an opportunity for the gospel to continue to flourish. And so whenever something like this, like families being separated, is in the headlines, a lot of times we run to that and we want to make sure that everybody knows sort of where we stand. And one reason or another, we may respond differently to that. I want you to know if you saw one of your brothers or sisters down there saying that they do not want families to be separated, voicing their concern for immigrant families, your response, if you don't think that's the right way to respond, is to ask them, not to tweet. Not, not to respond in the comment section with anger, or really not even to be silent. What Christians do is engage very difficult conversations so that Jesus would look spectacular and beautiful as he is. And so let's be very careful that when we see this happening, that it's not used as a dividing line. And let's also make sure we're looking at the Bible. Can I encourage you to look at the Bible, not your own feelings and heart? The scriptures speak much about immigration. The scriptures speak much about the refugee. Scriptures speak much about what it is to care for the least, the last, the lost, the stranger, and the sojourner, what it is to care for families. And so many of us speak with a lot of braggadocia and a lot of loud words, and we speak with no word of God. And so what Christians do is not say, this is what I think, but we say, this is what the word of God says. And this is what we uh, want to make sure that as we move forward in this conversation as a church, because immigration is a key thing for us to understand biblically in the neighborhood that we call home. 
because for many of us, this isn't even the sermon. This doesn't count yet. You're like, it's hot. It counts. Okay. Many of us have the luxury to not care about this policy. Many of us have the luxury to flip to the next news channel, but many of our neighbors that live in Logan Square are right next to wherever you call home. This is not something they can turn past because that's mom, dad, that's brother, sister, that's, that's tia, that's tio, that, that's abuelita, that's their family. And so let's be very careful when we enforce policy and forget people. Let's make sure that we know that our neighbors are dealing with this in many respects. If you look like me, act like me, talk like me, it probably doesn't hit your world directly. But when it hits our neighbors directly, what it is to love them is to listen, is to reach out and to apply the gospel in the way that we are meant to live. With that being said, let's look at Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. Let me read it for us, pray, and we'll get to work. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Would you pray with me? God, we're coming to your word And we're coming with a lot of preconceived notions. We're coming with a lot of emotion. We're coming with a lot of thoughts that we think on our own. We're coming, Father, having uh, looked for wisdom and truth in many different places, from many different people, from hearing ideas from our boss, colleagues, coworkers, employees, neighbors, friends, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, those we're dating, those we're married with. We've been hearing a lot of people say a lot of different things. And so would you calm our hearts? Would you center our affection? We need to hear from God. And so we thank you that you are a God who is there and you are not silent. We thank you that you have given us your word. Therefore, we don't have to wonder what you are like, but you reveal yourself to us in your word. And so help us, Father, to see you rightly in spirit and in truth. I pray for myself, I pray for my friends. As this word comes to bear in our hearts, we have a human and sinful tendency to build up barriers and defense against what you desire to say to us. We have explanations and reasons why we are behaving or thinking or loving in ways that are out of step with your gospel. And so help us as we come to your word to be transformed, to be healed, to be helped, to be risen from the dead to be given hope and joy in Jesus. 
And so, Father, I pray you would use my mind, use my heart, use my words in a way that honors you, in a way that simply reveals who you are. To that end, I'm available to you and ask that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So to this point, we have seen in Acts, Jesus ascend. In other words, in two different kinds of ways, ascend. Ascend in a royal sense, in that he takes the throne of the right hand of God as king over all things, as Lord. Uh, he also ascends in that he literally physically was lifted by a cloud in Acts chapter 1. And at that point, and the reason why he ascended is in order to send his son, the very presence of God, with the people of God. And so God sends his spirit to his people, inhabits his people, fills his people, and the church begins to be built just as Jesus said he would. Jesus said, I will build my church on my identity, on who I am, and when his spirit comes, this is the chief way in which God will apply the power of the gospel to the people of God. If you remember, the Father God is the architect of the gospel, the Son is the one who achieves the work of the gospel, and the Spirit of God applies the power of the gospel. We see the Trinity alive, well, active, doing the work of the gospel here in Acts. And now the church, having been united by the Spirit of God, begins to do ministry, begins to do work. And so in many respects, now we'll sing the words of Jesus come true. He told his disciples, his apostles, that you will do far greater than I have even done. He says, though I'll be with you wherever you will go, that my spirit will be alive. I'm going to send a helper to you. That not only Jesus said, I'm going to do signs and wonders, but you will do signs and wonders. And so now we're going to see all of this come to life, all of this come true. And I can't wait to show you. Look at verse one. Now, I'm excited because it's true. I don't know about you. Look at verse one. It says, now Peter and John... We're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So this gives us a little bit of context, a little bit of timing, and we see that Peter, who we've seen kind of establish himself by God's grace as the point leader of the early church, which is wonderful because as we follow the story of people, Peter, we know he does not deserve to be the leader. We know he has not earned that by his holiness. He has been welcomed into that by grace. Am I preaching to you yet? He has not earned that role because he's awesome. He gives us plenty of reasons to go, I would not have voted for you. You would not have been the guy that I picked out of the entire gaggle of apostles. That's right, a group of apostles apparently is a gaggle. So Peter is here, but now we're introduced to John, the gospel writer, the one who is beloved by Jesus. And these two men are going to temple. What we're seeing is that though they are now followers of Jesus, establishing uh, the church, they are still consistent in some of their Jewish practices, namely gathering in the temple, gathering in the temple for a time of prayer. Now, now for a Jew, it would have been incredibly important not only to gather in the temple, but to read the Torah and to show kindness. These were pillars of what it meant to be a Jew, to establish yourself in the word of God, to be consistent with the people of God, and to constantly show generosity to those around you. And so leading up to the temple, many Jews would have been ready to give, ready to make their hearts right in generosity before they gathered with God's people. And so it's not a surprise to hear at that hour, about 3 p.m., about 3 p.m., that there is another man that Luke, the writer of Acts, introduces us to. Look at verse 2. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, 
whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. There is so much here in verse 2 that if we read too quickly, we will miss the power of what's about to happen. First, I want us to see that this is a man with need. He had physical, material need, and so he asked for money. But he also has a limitation. His limitation is that he is unable to walk. But we also see that there is a cultural barrier. He doesn't go into the temple. He is set outside of the temple. And like every other person, he has a spiritual condition of sin that we will see later on as the chapter unfolds. In fact, the introduction of this man becomes the backbone of the story of Acts for the next two chapters. And so we see that he has a need for money, no doubt, because he has a need for food. He has a limitation of being unable to walk, which no doubt led to his need to beg and ask for money. But also we see this cultural, social dynamic or barriers where he's not brought into the temple, he's brought outside of it to be opportunistic and ask good Jews for money as they are going into the temple. But fourthly, like anyone, he has a spiritual condition. So there is a need, there is a limit, there is a barrier, and there is a condition. Are you with me? There's a need, there's a limit, there's a barrier, and there is a condition. But let's think about this for a moment. He was lame from birth. He was unable to walk from birth. Many of us know well what it is to welcome a child into the world with a severe limitation. Many of you know well what it is to welcome and to expect this child for a long time. So can you imagine that home life, what that was like, particularly within the first century, with a lack of good medical care, to welcome in a child who was unable to walk? Imagine what it was like for him growing up. Imagine what it was like for him to daily be led and carried to the outskirts of the temple. Not into the temple, but outside of the temple. Later on in chapter 3, or rather chapter 4, we find out that he is over 40 years old. This means that there is a routine There is a ritual, there is a constant repeat to his day and what it is like. Meet my need because of my limitation, aware of this barrier and unmet condition of his heart. Do you see the complexity of this situation? Isn't it true when we see somebody in need, we think it's simple? We think it's really simple. That person needs money. That person needs clothes. That person needs some kind of help. But here, I think, in the scriptures, we see it's not that easy. We see that it's not that easy. Religion tells us there's really simple answers for very complicated issues. Religion tells us there's very simple answers to very complicated issues. In other words, just give the guy some money. Just give the guy some money and help on your way in. And this was the routine. In fact, we are to believe that every single day the same thing happened. He asked for money. They gave him some money, enough to eat. He was back the next day. He sat there, asked for money, got some money, had enough to eat, was back there the next day. Asked for money, got some money, got some food, was back there the next day. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? Same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Everybody saw the need. And the reason that they only met the need was because of this cultural barrier. See, he had friends, had friends, interestingly, that brought him to the temple every single day and left him outside of the gate. They treated a gate like it was a fence. Left him outside of the gate of the temple, right there. And we, at this point, are to be aware of the severe 
barrier that he is, he is experiencing because in that particular time, many people, particularly Jews, would have read into his limitation, his ailment, his need, and his limitations physically as a judgment from God of his spiritual condition. It wouldn't have been viewed as a need, a limitation, and a barrier in this condition. It all would have been viewed as the exact same issue. This is your fault because you're a sinner. This is your fault because you are a sinner. Oh, isn't it good that we no longer look at people that way? Isn't it good that we, we, look, we look beyond those sorts of things to something deeper? No, this is the way that he was treated, and it creates this barrier, this segregation, this isolation where no one, please hear this, no one saw him anymore. They only saw his need. No one saw him anymore for 40 years. No one saw him. Have you ever felt invisible? Ethnically? Socially, financially, relationally? Have you ever felt like you were in this space of isolation where no longer people were even seeing the skin that you were in, let alone your soul? They just saw that you had a need. You had a limitation. You were different. You were broken. For 40 years, this is what this guy's community was telling him. It's evidenced by his age. It's evidenced by the fact that he has people bringing him to this space. It's evidenced by the fact he isn't coming into the temple. He's staying outside of it. It's evidenced by the fact that he keeps asking just for money. The complexity of this issue, I believe, is unavoidable, and that's what makes the profundity of what the apostles do so powerful. Look at verse 3. Seeing Peter... And John, about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms. Okay, hear that. He asked them the same thing he asks anyone every day, right? Nothing different. Sees Peter, sees John. Maybe he's never even heard of them, but let alone, he is going into his routine, expecting the same thing that he expects every single day. Look at verse 4. Oh, this is beautiful. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. We have a verse and a half that is just committed to eye contact. Did you hear that? A verse and a half that is just committed to eye contact. He saw them, and then Peter fixed his gaze, or rather, Peter directed his gaze at them. John looks at him, and they said, look at us. And he, that's, that's the lame man at the gate, fixed his attention on them. This is a wonderful cinematic moment of zoom-ins, eye contacts, turning from one direction to the other. Don't miss the power of this. No one saw this guy. They just brought him, left him, walked away, and people filed in and out of worshiping God and ignoring him. I'm not big on application points, but I think this one's pretty clear. We need to see people. We need to see them, not their need. We need to direct our gaze, fix our attention, and look at them. This isn't some sort of like hospitality of eye contact. This is understanding the image of God that cannot be stamped out by sin, shame, limitation, need, or social construct. The image of God is enduring and powerful beyond any limitation. Therefore, the people of God who love God, 
trust God, follow God, ought to see the image of God in every human being. No matter the need, no matter the limitation, no matter the barrier, no matter the condition, we're given a verse and a half of eye contact. Because something happens when we see people. Particularly when we believe that we've seen them because a bunch of pixels were organized in such a way on a screen that told us we know them and they know us. There is nothing like getting in front of someone and asking a question that gets to the heart. You can't replace that. No expedient way of doing that. This takes intentionality. This takes care. This takes a robust understanding and theology of how God has made human beings in his image. And so they do this. They look at him. But look at verse 5. And the way that it's framed is really helpful for us to understand the, the power of shame, the power of guilt, the power of this man's condition. Peter directed his gaze. John directed his gaze. They said, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. In other words, expecting the same old thing. Their expectation was exactly the same. We're gonna, I'll probably just get some money. I'll probably just get some money. And they just, I, I think, are weird extroverts and want me to look at them. Okay, I'll look at you. You're going to give me some money still. See, I, I, want, I want us to understand that, that one of the most crippling things that sin, shame, social constructs, cultural barriers, need and limitations, one of the most morbid and broken things that it does in us is it steals hope. It crushes hope. See, this man had been belittled to the point where he had no way to expect anything else than just a little bit more money to make it another day. So he's expecting the same old thing. And Peter said to him, look at verse 6. Peter said to him, I have no silver or gold. Can you imagine what he thought right away? Well, then what are we even doing here? Like, could you just go to the temple and pray or something? Peter said, I have no silver or gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Rise and walk. I love Peter's posture here. We don't know for sure whether or not he didn't have any coins in his pocket or whether he was merely saying that's not truly what you need or what is truly valuable. But what we do know is that this line of what I have, I give to you is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of, see, many, many of us even look at need, look at limitations, look at cultural barriers and say, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. And we actually remain in such a passive way and don't give what we actually do have. See, if you've been entrusted with the gospel, you've been entrusted with some power, You've been entrusted with the power of the eternal God that indwells within the people of God. See, Peter understood this. Silver and gold I do not have to, for you, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Here's what I love about this story. The man didn't ask to walk. Did you hear that? He just asked for more money. He just said, please meet my needs so I can make it another day. Hopelessness had crushed this man to the point. Disregard had hurt him to the point. A lack of being treated with dignity and the image of God that is value stamped on his soul. That had happened so many times that he stopped asking for the hope of his limitation or the culture changing. And he just asked, help me to live one more day. 
Help me to live one more day. I wonder how many of us, one, feel that way, sense that, and how many of our friends and neighbors do. I'm just trying to make it one more day. Hope has crushed us to the point, or rather, hopelessness has crushed us to the point where we don't begin to even believe that our limitations can be changed, or that culture can be transformed, or that our world and our condition can be completely resurrected. Christian, do not think that way. Christians ought not think that way. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then limitations are not your master. Cultural precedent is not your master. The resurrected Christ is. So Peter and John, with all kinds of like spirit-filled braggadocia, right, says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Rise and walk. I'm not going to give you food just for another day. I'm going to get you on your feet. I'm going to get you on your feet. But notice, Peter does not say in my name. Peter does not just say, rise and walk. What does he say? Somebody say, in the name, the name of Jesus. Somebody say, name, name, in the name of Jesus. Now, please, let's understand this. It's not merely the letters that form the name of Jesus that has power, It's the revelation, it's the understanding of all that comes with that name. So first, let me me help us just by reading a number of texts for us to hear the power that is found in Jesus' name. See, gathering in Jesus' name welcomes the presence of Jesus. Matthew 18 tells us this. Demons are cast out in Jesus' name. Mark 16 and Acts 16 help us see this. We can pray and ask anything in the name of who? Jesus, in the name of who? Jesus, John 14. The Holy Spirit comes in the name of Jesus. People are baptized in the name of Jesus. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Exhortations are made to the church in Jesus' name in 1 Corinthians 1. The church is made up of those who call upon the name of the Lord, 1 Corinthians as well. Give thanks for all things in Jesus' name, Ephesians 5. God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow, Philippians chapter 2. Oh, there's power in the name. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in his name because there is healing in his name. There is a redemption power in his name. His name reveals truth. His name challenges us. His name forgives us. His name is persistent. His name is generous and gracious. It is royal and kingly and kind. There is no name like Jesus' name. But see, his name is not just a magical potion for us to say when we want something. His name is a powerful name by which we surrender our lives to because he is Lord. See, we don't use him as a magical word to get things done, but rather at the name of Jesus, we bow because his power is made perfect in our weakness, in our surrender, in our submission to it. Jesus' name is powerful because God has given him his name. Jesus' name is powerful because it is an undefeated name. Death could not hold him. Jesus' name is powerful. Therefore, when the apostles implore the power of Jesus' name and ask anything in the will and way of Jesus, it happens. His word, his name is as good as reality. Therefore, we ought to bring up his name a lot more. In the hospital room, we better bring up his name. 
In the courtroom, we better bring up his name. In the marriage counseling room, we ought to bring up his name. When we're wondering what to do with our children, we ought to bring up his name. When we're wondering if we'll ever have children, we need to bring up his name. When we're wondering what it is to be in relationship, are we going to be married? Is that something I should desire and long for? We ought to bring up his name. When we're giving counseling or counsel to one another in small groups, bring up his name. When your mom calls you and frustrates you, you better bring up his name. When you frustrate your mother, you better bring up his name. When your children are driving you crazy, you better bring up his name. When a preacher says something you don't like, you better bring up his name. See, every single issue, every single problem, every single context and room you could ever be in, if you follow Jesus, part of what that looks like is bring up his name. Not as a magical potion, but saying it's his name where there is power, not the wisdom of this world. It's his name where there is joy, not the warm fuzzies in my soul. It's his name that reveals truth, not my opinion or personality. Jesus' name is where the power is. See, one of our great issues as a church is that we keep trying to look for power in all the same places that the world does. And we've got the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's power in his name. I wonder if you believe it. Peter and John sure did. They believed that there was power when you speak the name of Jesus. And one of the ways I believe that we understand whether or not we really believe there's power in his name is how we would respond to this particular text. See, because Jesus' name is always relevant. It's never out of context. It's always on point. It's always appropriate. It's always good for any season. His name is always in season. And I think there are many times when we think we can't bring him up. sweet old woman used to sit on the front row listening to a preacher. And when a traveling preacher came into town, if he took too long to bring up the name of Jesus, she would mumble from the front row, bring him up. If he took a couple more minutes, still didn't say the name of Jesus, she would get a little bit louder, bring him up. And if he would go 10, 15 minutes without bringing up the name of Jesus, she would shout at him from the front row, you better bring him up, preacher. I wonder if we had somebody following us around, offering wisdom, thinking about what we're supposed to do with our life, that the kinds of things we do at work, would they be murmuring in our ears, why don't you bring them up? Why don't you bring them up? See, when Peter and John say this, they say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Look at verse 7. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately... His feet and ankles were made strong. Can you imagine what that felt like? He was born without the ability to walk, and his feet and his ankles are made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. No less than four times does the narrative now tell us he walked, he walked, he walked, he walked. Why is that so important? Because Peter said, rise up and walk. See, many of us go, ah, that's what God used to do. He doesn't do that anymore. That's how we know we don't think there's power in the name. So now we have to depend on medicine and other people's skill to be sure the Lord has entrusted incredible skill and wisdom to many different men and women, but there's no power in any other name. There's power in this name. 
See, one of the things I think we have to wrestle with about this man is that he never asked to walk. He merely asked for money. He merely asked for something materially that he believed that he needed. needed. Needed something in order to make it to another day. And ultimately what that revealed was this tremendous sense of unbelief. He did, at the end of the day, he did not believe he could be made well. He, he didn't even believe that it was a possibility. He, he wasn't even wrestling with whether to do that. He was fitting into this routine of asking for something that would merely get him just to the next day. Spiritually speaking, my brothers, my sisters, physically speaking, literally speaking, generally speaking, I believe many of us wrestle with that same kind of belief every day. In fact, even right now, we're we're wrestling with the idea of believing. Perhaps we've never quite believed before. We've never fully given ourselves to belief in Jesus. And, And I think like the man here, what's underneath every unbelief is a fear, It's a fear that what if this is not true? What if I extend myself in belief and that ends up not being true? I'll get hurt. I will be embarrassed. I will be shamed. If I give myself fully and expose myself and entrust myself to another, it will ultimately end up hurting me. And so therefore, we protect ourselves with unbelief because we are fearful of being hurt. We're fearful of the cost. We're fearful of the shame. We're fearful of the implications. What if this man every day woke up and believed that he was going to walk again and told people about it? The the outcast nature of what he was experiencing, we all know, would have been exponentially increased. That dude's not only lame. He thinks one day he's going to walk again. Don't talk to him. Don't talk to him, don't hang out with him, because look, every day, what's he doing? Sitting by the gate again. Sitting by the gate. We're terrified to believe because it's too costly, isn't it? And so here's what we settle for in the American 21st century church. We settle for consumerism. So in, instead of believing and giving ourselves ultimately to this Jesus, because we're ultimately worried that it will cost us too much, we just begin to consume and make it to the next spiritual high. And so we boil down church to even gathering here, not as I pray I have an encounter with the God of the Bible that compromises all of my shortcomings and heals me of all of my sin. I want to completely be, I'm going to sing today. It's going to be loud. And when they pray, I'm going to legit pray, not just say, this is a long prayer, right? I'm not going to have that posture. I'm going to give myself to this. When my small group is exposing, I'm going to expose my sin and be humble before God. I'm going to trust him. We don't do that. What do we do instead? I hope the sermon's really interesting today because I'd like to be entertained a little bit. I hope they pick the right songs because I got like three songs that are good. And if they don't sing the right, I just don't know if the antennas will be up and I'll really have this great connection with Jesus. You better sing those three songs that I love. You better pray, keep it at 35 seconds. That, that would be nice. I don't know if I'm going to come back. The parking lot is closed. It's way hot. I know you're all the people who are here. Right? We start to think about those sorts of things. Empty seats, no shade. They probably saw that there wasn't going to be shade and air conditioning. So like, ah, that's not my deal. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to overextend myself. See, if we don't have belief, what we have is consumerism. And the church becomes a factory that produces products for your spiritual comfort and not a context and a people that have encounters with the God of the Bible. And you know what that does? It just gets us to the next Sunday just gets us to the next Sunday. It's a little bit of consumption. And if it wasn't good, you know what we do? We just go and listen to some of our favorite CCM Christian music and that kind of satisfies and we get what we want, right? We'll download our favorite preacher. Jason just didn't really hit it out of the park today. I'm going to go download somebody else. This, this spiritual consumption that we get in, actually the cause of that is unbelief. 
we don't believe that, that this is actually ultimately true. We just believe that it actually encourages, helps, equips, gets us to the next week. This is devastating. This is devastating. And we wonder why. Why don't we see the Spirit of God actually sweeping in with the people of God, making them holy as He is holy, and seeing a huge dent in the kingdom of darkness in Logan Square in Chicago? Because nobody actually believes. Nobody actually believes this stuff. You're just like, it kind of feels nice, it's comfortable, I really like it. What do you like about your church? Well, let me give you the equalizer vision of why this is a little bit distinct and different. Like, we're so, we're so crazy. We're so crazy in the way we talk about church and all the ways that we talk about what we're like and what we do. And believe me, trust me, like, I do this more than anybody else. So I'm calling myself out more than anybody. What's your church like? Oh, let me tell you all the things that we got going on and what's happening. You'd be jealous that you're not at my church, Right? Is that really what the bride of Christ is meant to be about? Or is it meant to be, you know what? Despite our best efforts, people who are lame keep coming in and the Lord says, rise and walk, and they do. And I have no reason. I cannot explain that. You see the difference? We got good musicians, a preacher that yells. It's really great. The children's program. They greet you with a welcoming and encouraging handshake. When we, when we get here, it's wonderful. Like these sorts of things are great. They're wonderful. They are not ultimate. We don't come to a church because we like the things that it gives us. We come to a church because God is there. God meets with his people. In the name of Jesus, he meets with his people. See, I want to keep coming to this church because it's where the name of Jesus is trusted, not the name of Jason, not the name of Park, not the name of church in the square, none of that. All that will burn outside of the grace and power of Jesus' name. So what's our hope? Our hope, I think, is in this. This man did not ask to walk. I can't get over that. In, in other words, let, let, let's think about the heart of God in that, that God gives us more than we even know to ask for. That's amazing. God gives you, my brother, my sister, he gives you more than you even know to ask for because of your need and limitation and cultural context and condition. He, he gives you more. He gives you his son. We wouldn't even known to ask for his son. We would have just said, could you help me hurt less, right? We wouldn't have said, can you give me resurrection, and this is what he gives us. And how can Jesus give us this? Jesus can give us this because despite our need, he gets down to the limitation. He gets down to the cultural dynamic. He gets down to the condition of the heart because it is out of the condition of the heart that leads to men and women organizing culture in racist, segregational kind of ways that said those who are lame are less, worth less than those who can walk into the temple on their own. Not only that, but the limitations even cause the, the axis of this world has been broken because of sin and needs show up because we are people who ultimately need God. Do you, see, do you see this, that we need God? We don't need money. We don't need things to get us to the next day. We need resurrection. We need to rise up and walk. How hopeful is that? That because Jesus nailed every sin, evil, pain, chaos, and confusion to the cross, you come and ask anything in his name, and he gives it by grace. You need to stop asking for money and start asking to walk. You can start asking to walk. You don't have, oh, this is such good news. This is such good news. See, I think the hard thing about this text, you're like, am I the lame guy or am I Peter and John? That's the point. It's not about you. It's about the name. It's about the name of Jesus. Therefore, if you find yourself 
in the midst of incredible need, if you find yourself in the midst of incredible limitation, if you find yourself on the victim side of incredible cultural dynamics of power and of weakness, if you find yourself in a sinful condition, the name of Jesus can make you well. And if you find yourself of those like Peter and John who have already been entrusted with the name and are walking and rising, I want you to understand, I want us to see how they respond to this man. Verse 7 is really, oh, we can't read it too quickly. Look at verse 7 again. And he, that's Peter, took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. If we're not careful, we, we can think now that the hope is, is to simply just bring people to a place where they'll hear the name of Jesus and say, I don't have money, I don't have resource, just, just, just Jesus, 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 Jesus right? I have to be very careful. Yes, there's power in the name. Yes, that is what we're to preach. That is what we're to, that's the way we're supposed to see the world. But look what Peter does. He says, rise up and walk. And then what does he do? He stretches out his hand. Don't, don't miss this. Peter doesn't say, rise, get up and walk and back away from him and say, all right, I gave you Jesus. So do it. He says, rise, get up and walk. And he puts his hand down for him. There's beauty in that. This, this tells me that the gospel is not just something to preach to someone, it's something to inhabit and to live out. Peter extends himself the way in which God in Christ extended himself to Peter. This is not merely we preach truth over you and then you have to figure it out. We preach truth and where the power of God is and then we overextend ourselves past our comfort and we reach out our right hand and help our brothers, sisters, friends, neighbors who are in need. We don't just preach to them, we extend ourselves on their behalf. Peter does that. He reaches up because he needs help. He's never walked before. He's never walked before. Let's zoom in a little bit more. This is going to get uncomfortable. There's some people we can't stand. We're like, why aren't you more like me? Right? And you're like, I don't know about that. Yes, you do. We have people like that. We, we ignore their messages on Facebook all the time, their updates. We, we do it implicitly sometimes in our hearts. We do it explicitly by unfollowing them and saying, I can't stand you anymore, or by just not hanging out with those kinds of people anymore, or about disregarding an entire political stream or entire political ideology. There's kinds of people that we just do not get along with and we do not want to help them. This is a disagreement with the gospel. The gospel is a picture for us of one who is different than us, who is altogether glorious, altogether separate, steps down into our condition, extends himself on our behalf, sacrifices himself so that we might know who he is, so that we might know what true life is, what it is to be resurrected to new life. And I think many times when we look, if we're in a position of power or of opportunity, we'll look at those who are different than us and think it's just their fault and that's why they have a need. And so distance culturally continues to be perpetuated because we make massive presumptions of the problem. Instead of overextending ourselves in relationship, asking questions that get to the heart, sacrificing my time, my resources, my comfort for the sake of someone else. This is what Peter does. He'd never walked before. Sometimes we hold this sort of expectation over people that we would be so angry if that expectation was held over us. Right? We always have excuses when the shoe's on the other foot. Well, you don't know. I've never walked before. I can't. How do you even do that? Right? But I said, rise, get up, and walk. Peter extends himself as God in Christ has extended himself to him, to this man. And he leapt to his feet, verse 8. And leaping 
up, he stood and began to walk. And notice this, and then he entered the temple with them. You notice that? The cultural barrier was broken down. See, Jesus doesn't just forgive sin. He dismantles broken, sinful cultural barriers as well. This is what Ephesians 2 tells us, that he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, that Jesus does not just save us from our sin. He crushes earthly power, and he overwhelms barriers that sin has created. And so now this man is welcomed in culturally, spiritually, and otherwise into the temple, in other words, into the very presence of God. Walking, leaping, and what does he do? Praising God. And all the people around him saw him walking and praising. They were like, what in the world is going on? Verse 10, and recognized him as the one who sat. Hey, that's a sitting guy. That guy usually sits. He's running around walking. This is the beauty of the gospel. Nobody's like, who is that person? I don't even understand. I don't even understand. That's the one who sits, is now walking and running and leaping and praising God at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And what happens to them happens to anyone who experiences this kind of power of the name. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I want you to notice Peter is not praised. John is not praised. God is. One of the evidences of a consumeristic tendency of a church or a community is that we praise pastors, we praise spiritual heroes and leaders, and we don't praise God. Yes, it is good to encourage our brothers and sisters. I I love when you encourage me, you encourage our leaders, but at the end of the day, you only praise one person. You praise God. Because only God has the power to do what he is doing. Only God has the power to resurrect. Only God has the power to take someone who could not walk their entire life and in an instant say, get up and walk. Only God has the power to break down cultural barriers that divide men and women on ethnicity, socioeconomics, all kinds of different levels. God does that kind of work. And yet he invites us, as he invited Peter and John, to be the hands and feet of his gospel work. So we must not be a people that say God does the work. We must be a people that say God does the work. Do you see the difference in that posture? One says God does the work. I'm just going to believe and have faith. No, you're terrified and fearful and consumeristic when you back away from the issues. When we say God is the one who does the work and engage and reach out and overextend ourselves, we prove the message that we preach is real with our lives. And when people start doing that, sure enough, they're going to wonder, they're going to be in awe, they'll be in amazement, and they're all going to praise Jesus for it because he's the only one who could do it. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness because our consumerism has turned into praising the wrong people. Our consumeristic tendencies of just needing money or just needing a sort of spiritual handout or spiritual fix, our tendency to believe that that's where our hope is, is fueled by unbelief and fear. And so forgive us of those things in our hearts. Thank you for this powerful story. Not of something that you used to do, but of something that you do because that's who you are, because there's power in that name still. And so, God, may we live as a people who are found, anchored, established in that name, the name of Jesus, the Son of the living God. Help my brothers and sisters, help myself in my unbelief and our unbelief. Reveal your Son to be the one who has championed all of our fears, who satisfies our deepest longings, 
who has risen us from the dead, who has raised us from the dead, who has given our feet strength to walk again, who gives us all that we need from our daily bread to the resurrection of our soul. And so we trust you, we love you, we worship you, we praise you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?